Oh, this is Stan. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, my sobriety date's June 10th, 1990. And I'm really uh, excited about that. I got a birthday coming up this year, hopefully, if I don't drink. And uh, got my sponsor here tonight, John. He's uh, going to be taking uh, 36 years here in a couple of three weeks, something like that. And, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is... Uh, been something I never aspired to. I don't think any of us in this room did. But now that it's happened, it's one of the greatest events that's ever happened to me. And I'll talk a little bit about that here in just a few minutes. You know, the odds on me being an alcoholic were not very good. I <clears throat> grew up in a family where there was no alcohol ever in our house. My parents, did, well, they drank previously uh, earlier in their life, but uh, they became part of a very uh, conservative uh, Christian uh, religion, and I don't have anything against that. In fact, I'm conservative Christian myself nowadays, but uh, we just, and we didn't associate with people that drank, and that included family members. Uh, there was a side of my mom's family that was pretty heavy drinkers, but we just didn't really associate with it. We did not, not like them, but we just didn't do it, so I had that strike against me. That should have been a, a shield against alcoholism, but it didn't. And then on top of that, once I did start drinking, I only drank beer. So if you just drink beer, you can't be an alcoholic. And um, so anyway, at the, and on top of that, I had a great work ethic, you know, and if you, if you're a great worker and you're always on work when you should be, it's something I learned from my dad. He was a super dependable guy. And so I, I got that from him. I mean, I never let anything get in the, in the way of, you know, being able to provide. And so by all definitions that I had in my head, you know, I can't be an alcoholic. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to go there. I just, you know, I'm not wired that way. But the thing is, you know, there's <clears throat> alcohol is cunning, baffling and powerful. And it strikes a wide variety of people from all walks of life. And, um, it, it certainly struck me and it came, it's, it snuck up behind me. And I'll tell you a little bit about my story. I was born in 1951. So I'm ancient, you know, I'm old. I mean, and, and I'm glad to be old. I wouldn't be old if I had, you know, found Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, whenever I was 39 years old. And then after I'd been going to meetings for a while and in Texas, that's where I got sober, um, a lot of the meetings you announce what your sobriety date, uh, they go around and everybody says I'm an alcoholic and you say your name and your sobriety date. And this guy told me, uh, June 10th, you know, that's founders day. And I go, really founders day. What is founders day? <laughs> and he, he says, well, that's when Bill and Bob started alcoholics anonymous. That's and I said, well, you know, that's pretty cool. I think I'll keep that date. And, you know, not, and, and in the back of my mind, you know, I go, that's a date that I really shouldn't, I shouldn't change. I should really try to keep that. And I've been successful with the help of God and the, and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous to be able to keep that date. So, and I am, and I plan on keeping it from here on out, but, uh, <clears throat> growing up, um, my dad worked a lot and he was a good, very good man. He's been uh, deceased now for about 10 years. I love my dad. He, uh, worked, uh, you know, he didn't travel a lot, but he worked long hours uh, and he didn't make a lot of money, but he was a super person. 
And so he, he came to as many ball games as he could come to, but he couldn't make a, make a lot of them. And uh, my mom didn't work. This was back, you know, whenever we had I Love Lucy on television. And, you know, we normally, a lot of, a lot of families just had one, uh, one earning, one person earning the living. And that was my dad. And that's the way that we were raised. He, she, my mom was in charge of raising the family. Now, <clears throat> my mom was a dry drunk. And I didn't know what a dry drunk was, but now that I have some experienced alcoholics and I was like, she definitely was, she was a rager. <laughs> she uh, disciplined us uh, very strictly and often. And she had uh, four sons, no daughters. And uh, we all were a little bit on the wild side and she had a lot of discipline to give out. And then typically when dad got home, he gave us a little bit more of it. And so that's just the way things were, but we were good kids. You know, we just did the normal stuff, you know, talk back a little bit to her, but never to dad, you know, and stuff like that. You know, nothing major. It didn't take a lot to get a spanking whenever you were growing up in the fifties, I'll tell you. And then you go off to school and they'd spank you all the time too, there too. I tell you what, I don't resent that either because I think it, it really uh, helped. Uh, we got some kids that need to be spanked nowadays, but that's a different topic and we won't go off on that one. But, uh, and growing up and there was never any alcohol around and I didn't miss it. I didn't glorify it. You didn't even really see tons of it on television back in those days. But I felt that I didn't feel comfortable with myself for some reason. And I played sports and I was a good student, but I never was really that all that comfortable in my own skin. And uh, I never understood that really, you know. Uh, but it's one of those things that, you know, is kind of in the back of your mind all the time. I, I really didn't like the fact that uh, we didn't have as much uh, material things as, as my other friends did. We had one car and my dad drove a Falcon station wagon and that's the car I was going to learn how to drive on, you know, as a stick shift on top of that. And I was really not looking forward to going out on dates, you know, driving a stick shift Falcon station wagon. And, you know, we lived in a small uh, two bedroom house. We eventually added a third bedroom onto it. And it was a very, very average middle-class family. And I had friends, you know, and they they had two cars and their dads went to offices and, you know, they had more and, I thought I deserved more. And I really did. I look back on that. I didn't really appreciate, you know, the effort that my uh, dad uh, went through to provide, you know, he didn't have a college education, blue collar background, worked for Ford motor company, and he provided for us, but he didn't give me the luxury that, you know, I felt I deserved. And uh, that was that selfish, self-centered thinking already, planted in uh, my psychic if you would and it was gonna really not <clears throat> do me a lot of good in the in my future life but I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit uh here later on so in in once i got into high school that's whenever you know the the doors kind of open the opportunity starts to present itself to where you can uh go off the rails a little bit if you want to and so uh my uh brothers and I, we were always, uh, we got, we loved golf. Our dad played golf. And that was one time we could spend, uh, with dad, we, we'd caddy for him and then we started playing golf with him. And, uh, 
back in those days, whenever the golf tour would kind of, I grew up in Oklahoma city. We later moved up to Dallas, Texas. That's when the golf tournaments, the, the uh, total prize money in a professional golf tournament when it came to Oklahoma city was only $55,000. Well, now that's not even like 20th, 30th place in a golf tournament. And the, and the, uh, junior golfers in the area a lot of they caddied for the pros you know and that was a big deal you know and that's whenever you got to see uh, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus fairly early in their career come and play and then some of the other guys like Sam Steed and Ben Hogan were still around they were at the end of their careers and that was just a, a wonderful time that's when you could walk inside the ropes and see these guys play golf and stuff and so I was caddying at that golf tournament and uh they had a beer tent and I don't know how I, I managed that, but I w- went over there and a cup of beer was 50 cents and that I didn't pay for it, but I, somebody gave me a cup of beer and I drank it and a cu- you know, a cup of beer is not going to do too much to you. I was 14 years old at the time, but uh, I just felt I'd like committed the biggest crime in the world, you know, taking a, a drink of beer and I don't think I could finish all of it. And I threw it down, but I, I did feel some ease and comfort and it was quite a while before I could start drinking again because there, it was just never around. But in high school, you could, there was more opportunity. You start driving and your friends are with you and uh, we would go out and uh, drink on Friday nights is typically football nights. And it was fun. I, we thoroughly enjoyed it. We'd get into some mischief and some trouble, but then it was really starting to be on then because I had found something that was becoming my friend. And then I had friends that were better friends. And uh, yeah, I had more uh, courage than I ever thought that I, that I'd ever been able to muster before. And I was starting to feel more comfortable in my skin. And it was this miracle of alcohol that was providing all of that. So here we go off to college and uh, you know, it's 1969. And the world is really changing. Woodstock happens in August. And uh, of course, I'm living in <laughs> I'm living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And Woodstock might, have, might as well have been on the moon. I didn't know what <laughs> Woodstock was. But, it, you know, things were really changing. And that's when the Vietnam War was raging at that time. And so I decided I was going to be a good college student. I had nothing, no desire to go off and fight the war uh, in Vietnam. And I was a pretty good student already, but I went through four years of college, didn't miss a, I, well, I can count on my hand the amount of times I missed class because I, I was really focused on staying away from the war. And on top of that, it was building a really good association with alcohol by this time. But I was a good student. So um, the only time I allowed myself really to enjoy uh, alcohol a lot was on the weekends, but we started the weekends on Thursday. So Thursday night was always a party night. And then we'd get ready to go through the weekend. And I went to a college at Stephen F. Austin university. And that's in East Texas. And it was one of those, uh, where everybody left town on the weekends pretty much. And so, uh, I fell in love with, uh, a girl that was soon to be my wife. And we, we'd go to Houston every once in a while on the weekends and her family was just the opposite of my family. I mean, they partied like crazy. They had alcohol all over the place and we were uh, 18, 19 years old. And so they didn't mind if we drank there. And so I fell in love with 
her family. Then I fell in love with her. And so it was, and then there was alcohol all over the place. And so I, I just knew that I fit in. And on the other hand, I began divorcing my parents and my parents were loving people to, to, uh, to me. They wanted to see me, but I didn't really want to see them because we didn't have anything in common, you know, uh, they didn't drink. And I want, and this is whenever I was just learning, learning how to drink. And I look back on that and I'm really ashamed, <clears throat> ashamed of that. And I, I later made a, a living amends to my parents, uh, as well as a face-to-face -face amends to them over that, because there were many years where we had uh, virtually little or no contact because once I, turned 18 and graduated from college, uh, graduated from high school, and I was off to college, I wanted to get away from them too, just as much as I wanted to get an education because I didn't want to be under my dad's rules anymore. I respected him, but I knew I couldn't live like that any longer. Uh, I just didn't want to, you know, and I was going to be respectful and obey the law and all that kind of stuff, but I had a different purpose and the mentality behind my, I found my friend alcohol and we were going to have an association and go beyond that. So I graduated from college. I married my, uh, college, uh, sweetheart and we started our life and, uh, and I got a job with Ford Motor Company and I, they transferred me from Houston over to Atlanta, Georgia. And I started my career and this is something I'd always wanted to do. My dad worked for Ford Motor Company, but he had a blue collar job, but he knew some people that were in management and they said, you know, you, you should try to get your son involved with uh, Ford, you know, with the uh, management trainee uh, program that they have. And there's a lot of good things they can do. They can, they uh, can become field managers and they work for the company and they, they're the representatives for Ford to supply their cars, their sales training, and do a lot of different things. And it's, and you get a company car and expense account. And so I started hearing that stuff and I hear expense account. I know what expense accounts are, <laughs> are like and entertaining. And, and the fellow that I was talking to, I can't remember his name uh, now, but he went to the university of Michigan. He had a middle management job at Ford. And he was telling me all about it. And I got really excited. And so that's what I did. I got a job with Ford Motor Company and went to Atlanta and, uh, eventually got promoted to this field management position after working inside the office uh, for a while. And I got my company car and that expense account and a briefcase. And that was, <laughs> I was, I was living life. I mean, I go, this is great. My territory was uh, Alabama, <laughs> a section of Alabama, not the whole state. And so uh, my dad had always taught me how to be a great provider. So that's what I started to do. I, I worked, on the road from Monday to Friday and uh, come home on the weekends, which meant I cut the grass and screwed my wife as much as I could then hit the road again on Monday and went on and did that for a long time. And I, I, uh, I thought I was, I was doing what I should be doing. You know, I, I didn't have feelings for anybody really other than myself. You know, I, it's not like I didn't like anybody else. I didn't like anybody else as much. <laughs> I, mean, I really, and I was uh, trying to work as hard as I could to get advanced in this career and get promotions and, you know, whatever that meant. I didn't really uh, relish the thought of going to Michigan or Detroit and be with those boys over there. But I just, I just had a mission in life. And a mission in life was to get ahead 
but have a great time while I was doing it. And I had got my wife pregnant. We had our first son and I really didn't want to have much to do with the boys while they were infants. I just didn't have any use for them. I mean, all they did was poop and throw up on you and wake you up at night. And so I was not that good of a dad. I mean, and I was still traveling the whole time. And then the second one comes and uh, my wife, whenever we were uh, courting and in college and then also uh, with our boys, I mean, she was badly in love with me. I don't understand it, but she just was crazy about me. You know, she had an alcoholic father and it was really tough for her growing up. Her father uh, couldn't hold a job. And he got a business, you know, was a, running a, uh, his own record store, and he wasted a lot of money on it, borrowed money, and uh, drove that into the ground. And uh, his him, he got uh, divorced from Terry's mom, and he ended up committing suicide. He died an alcoholic death at the hands of a gun. He took his own life in a bathtub. He's sitting in a bathtub, and it it's just tragic. He was a smart man but alcohol got him. And uh, Terry, that was my first uh, wife's name. She just couldn't stand her father. She was disgusted with him. But after he had taken his own life, it was just a very sad period of time because even though she didn't like him, she didn't really like what he had become. She loved him. And that's one of those things that really uh, uh, was a tremendous blow to her whenever that happened. So as it turned out, I was kind of headed down that same path myself. You know, I was drinking a lot, uh, but only, you know, I only drank beer, you know, and, but when I drank wine, whenever you had those occasions, whenever you're doing a dinner, uh, company dinner and, and entertaining people, I would black out. That's the only time I really was black out when I was drinking wine. So I hadn't had any consequences from, you know, my drinking episodes up until this point, but then, um, uh, one night I was driving with my wife and we'd gone to a football game. I was coming home and I drank all the, I mean, I drank every day and with beer, you know, I'd get these little coolers and put them right behind the back seat where you could reach over and get, you know, I never had a lot of beer in there, but it, I was always drinking. So, and, and drinking and driving wasn't such a big deal back in the seventies and eighties. I mean, like it is now, I mean, it just wasn't a big deal. But I got pulled over and uh, arrested, went to jail for a few hours. But this was 1975, and all they did was give you a fine. I, I didn't even get, I pled no low contendo, whatever that means in Latin, and I just paid a fine, didn't do any AA or any of that kind of stuff, didn't have to, you know. So, but then you fast forward. Um, 1989 and a lot happens between 1975 and 1989 my drinking progressed i'm still drinking every day but i'm not missing any time at work i'm still getting promoted uh and driving nice cars got the expense account and i'm really kind of comfortable where i'm at i changed jobs from ford motor company i go start to work for volvo car corporation so i'm kind of doing the same thing with volvo but it's with a foreign car company and I like driving Volvos better than Fords. I mean, it was a cooler car and I got transferred back to, uh, I, on this new job, I went uh, back over to uh, Texas again to live and that made my uh, wife really happy. So things were looking good. 
But the thing is, my my uh, disease is progressive, probably very much like the disease you have. And so the drinking was constant, and I was drinking more and getting drunk more. And uh, at the same time, my wife went back to work. The boys were getting a little bit older. And unbeknownst to me, she was gradually falling out of love with me. This woman that was crazy about me now has had enough of me. I'm selfish and self-centered to the core. I'm not really thinking about anybody but myself. And I, I can, and you really don't see that other than uh, in retrospect. You can't really feel it at the time. Because if you're like me, you think you're doing exactly what you should be doing. You're providing, you're not hurting anybody and you're living a pretty good lifestyle. You got a, a nice house, a couple of cars and the kids are doing good in school. But at the same time, you know, you're destroying the life of other people and you don't even know it, or at least you're putting them on the path of destruction. So <clears throat> one day I get, uh, my wife says, uh, well, we need to talk. And that never is a very good little opening line if you get it from a, your wife. And she pulls me over the side. And she says she's not happy. And uh, I go, really? So she says, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not very happy. And I, I think we, we need to go to marriage counseling. I, she says, I just don't, I don't feel like I love you. And I go, and I, I you know, I, this hits me like out of the blue, you know, I, so anyway, we decide to go to marriage counseling and we do that for a little while. And then uh, finally she comes out and says uh, that she's uh, in love with somebody else. And it turns out it's her boss. Well, I go, well, you know, that's, that is what it is. And we're still going to marriage counseling and all that, but it ends up that we do end up getting divorced. And, uh, but, and while that's all going on, I get my second DUI. And so that gives really the fuel to the fire to really accelerate the divorce. And I'm feeling really bad at this point in time. I'm, I'm out of town on a business trip. We're living in Houston at the time. And I get arrested in Dallas and put in jail overnight and get out. And then I have to make that long drive home to a wife that really didn't want me to come home. And, uh, and that accelerates the separate. We go ahead make the separation and and then I start preparing my case before the court coming up so here it is I, I've got an attorney for a DUI and then I've also got an attorney for a divorce and you know it's that's it's just not things are not going all that great in my life and things have been going I thought pretty good for my side of the fence for a pretty good while but now they're definitely there's problems and there's, and these problems are really starting to weigh heavy on me because I just couldn't believe, you know, how could this woman not be in love with me anymore? You know, she was crazy about it. She would do anything. And now uh, it's not like, it's, it's not like she's real upset with me, but she's found somebody else and that's how it going. Now I've got a DUI to deal with. And luckily I didn't get a DUI in a company car or that would have been really bad. I was in a rental car. I was out of town, but really my, the, the people at work, it wasn't even a big deal back then. And this is like 1990. So I get in front of the judge. I'm here. It is a uh, June uh, is right around father's day. It's uh, a couple of days before my court appearance is going to be on a Tuesday. 
and June the 10th fell on a Sunday and it was Father's Day. And so uh, I'm at the lake house and my in-laws had a, a lake house in Lake Livingston. So I'm there thinking about what uh, what's going to happen on Tuesday. And I just make the decision, you know, I probably ought to stop drinking now uh, so that whenever I get, go to the court on Tuesday, I don't have any hangover or anything like that. And I'll be lucid and, you know, don't have anything to worry about. And I'll tell him that, you know, I'm going to be a good guy and all that. We'll see how this thing works out. But uh, so I did, I quit on that. That was uh, my last, uh, my last day of drinking. I had two uh, pearl light beers, <laughs> the ultra, ultra light beers, weaker than well water stuff. But, you know, it's the way it was. I planned this out where I was going to be straight and everything. And so I, that was my last day that I took a drink and I didn't have any idea it was going to be the last time I drank ever. I hadn't really even dreamt of that. So I uh, go to Dallas and go in front of the judge and the judge that I'm, I'm going to see, and I already been warned a little bit about him. We tried to change judges, but that wasn't possible. But he uh, had a contributor called Mad. And so Mad was a major contributor towards this guy. And I actually had sat in on a couple of his uh, court proceedings and uh, he threw the book at people. And so I decided not to try to fight the guy. We we're just going to go over there and have a conversation with him and, you know, just be as nice as possibly can and see how that thing worked out. And so he started asking me questions about my drinking behavior and family. And uh, I did my mom's side of the family had a lot of alcoholism my dad's side of the family had virtually none but it was the first time and I, I remember giving him a, a detailed list of how a day would go for me I had a traveling job and I drank and uh, and I drank every day and occasionally I drank too much I would black out and I you know I couldn't believe I'm telling this guy all this stuff and uh, so he didn't really throw the book at me other than the fact that you know he sentenced me to Alcoholics Anonymous was one of the things I had a list of things that I had to do on my pro, uh, probation. Alcoholics Anonymous was one of them. And then I had to go to Mad Impact Panel. And then I had to go to uh, DUI school, whatever that was back then. It was, really wasn't that bad like it is now. And I had to take a sheet of paper along with me and I had to get it signed by people. And uh, But the one thing that impressed me or got my attention on that sheet was that I was prohibited. They use that word prohibited from drinking alcoholic beverages for two years. And if I violated that, I was going to go back to, I was going to go back to jail for 547 days. So I was <clears throat> in the courtroom and I decided, you know, that there's something needs to change. You know, I don't, I didn't like jail the one night that I was there. So I just made the decision, I, you know, I'm going to try Alcoholics Anonymous and see if that helps me. And uh, so that's what I did. I had to drive home from Dallas to Houston. That time I decided not to buy my usual 12 pack of beer, which is how long it took me to drive from Dallas to Houston. And I made it back home. And I proceeded to get separated, you know, waiting for the divorce to happen. And I pleaded with God unmercifully about, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to change God. I'm going to change God. And, and I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. My first meeting was an out of town meeting. 
down in South Texas and uh, way down at uh, Port Isabel. And I went there because I knew there would be nobody at that first meeting that knew me. But that first meeting was impactful. You know, there's I've been to a lot of meetings since then, obviously, but I'll never forget that first meeting. You walk in there and uh, I had no preconceived idea of what it was going to be like because I'd never been to an AA meeting. I didn't know anybody in AA. And uh, they asked me, they asked if there was anybody here for the first time ever. And I said, yes, um, first time ever stand right here, alcoholic. And uh, they proceeded to make it a first step meeting. They called it a first step meeting where everybody in the room shared briefly about how it was and what it's like now. And by doing that, uh, and there was people from all walks of life. It was a, a meeting that had about 25 or 30 men in it. And there was one guy that was detoxing right over there. I could see it. And it was not, not a pretty thing to look at. And, uh, but I, I got some hope that night that there was, I could change. I didn't know what change really meant other than the fact not drinking because I only came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was ordered to, and I wanted to stop drinking. But like all of us that stay around here sometime, uh, we learned that there's a lot more to this than just not drinking. Uh, you're going to find out that you're just not living, but just not drinking opens, starts to open the door. And once you get into Alcoholics Anonymous, if you get in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, by not just going just to meetings, but getting involved in it, taking commitments and getting a sponsor and doing that magical thing called working the steps, which are is also called the principles of the program. When it says we practice these principles in all of our affairs, you're practicing and putting the steps into action. And that's when the magic starts to happen. They talk about that psychic change and there is a solution. Uh, you will, there's going to be a psychic change that is brought about by working and living a program of a spiritual program of action. And so if you're <clears throat> coming to meetings like this, and if you're practicing principles, you can't help but see some major, major changes start happening in your life. But they don't happen instantly because it just doesn't happen that way in Alcoholics Anonymous. You're going you're gonna to get sober and you're going to go 30, 60, and 90 days. And if you've been without a drink for that length of time, you're going to see some really wonderful things that start to happen in your life. And <clears throat> some of our people here will pull the plug too early. Things are going along so good. The life that Alcoholics Anonymous gave them is also going to be the same life that, the same life that'll take them out if they don't get deeper down into the program, which is getting involved with sponsors and reading the book. Now, I'm a big proponent of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I love that book. I mean, it's a, I'm in a book study. I highly recommend everybody in here uh, if you're not already to get involved in a book study because that's where you dig down into it and the book study that i go to every wednesday night and some of my fellow uh, guys are here with me tonight that are in that book study you get to learn each other pretty well but you also get to learn the book really well and you get to learn how to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous directly out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you can use the 12 and 12 as a supplement because that's what it is. That's just an example of how uh, Bill Wilson worked the steps. So uh, it's a life-changing event. And, I, and one thing I would recommend you too, I'm a big advocate of reading the big book 
But the first time you go through the big book, you should have somebody with you reading the big book that's been through it before. Otherwise, you're going to skip the doctor's opinion. You're going to skip the, the forward, the preface. And those, because I skip all of that whenever I'm reading a normal book. And if you skip that when you're reading the big book of Alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous, you skip a huge chunk of vital information. So uh, I'm proud to tell you that I'm a, I'm a happy customer of Alcoholics Anonymous. I really am. I, I would not change. If there were some things I could change in my life, I would. But I would not change the fact that I'm an alcoholic because I think being an alcoholic actually for me has been a blessing because now I'm in recovery. I'm not re and I'm, I am recovered. I'm not cured. There is a distinction. And I, I love the fact that I'm uh, in recovery and every day I wake up and I look forward to the, to continuing that road on recovery. Uh, And I only way that I can do that is being part of, like they say, in step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and, us together admitting that we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. We're going to work together along with our higher power, who I choose to call God, to make not only our lives better, but everybody else around us better and hopefully a better world too. So anyway, with that, that's all I have to say this evening. I'm very thankful for the uh, opportunity to come here and share a little bit of uh, experience that I have with you. And hopefully we get to hear some of you all shared your same experience at a later date. Thanks for listening.